understanding as we honor God's word together. I'm in Mark chapter 1, 1 through 8. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated um, where you're at. We'll dismiss our school-aged kids to the back as they uh, take off. And if you haven't already, let me invite you to open up uh, your Bibles. If you have, uh, if you brought one, if you have it on some sort of app to, uh, to Mark chapter 1. A lot going on today. Um, as many of you know, Miss Rachel is like going to have a baby any day now. Yes. And so everybody is like on uh, baby duty. We're like, there's several contingency plans in place. <clears throat> we're, we're wondering, is it today? Is it today? Um, so y'all be praying for, for her and Tim. Uh, exciting times. Um, tonight's also our team night event. And uh, let me just prepare you for what's, uh, some of what's in store there. I was talking to CJ this morning and he was like, I can't wait to see the new space and see what color the drums are. And I was like, well, buddy, the drums aren't gonna be there yet. Because, well, the drums that we have will be the ones we bring with us. Um, this is the pre-renovated space, so don't get your hopes up real high. It looks like all a combination of all the things it's been before. It's what it's going to be. So there's a little bit of, uh, you know, baseball-looking theme going in there with some of the colors and um, a fish restaurant and a bingo hall and uh, honky-tonk dancing and whatever else it was before then. It's been a lot of things. But uh, I am excited for us to see it tonight. Um, so uh, come, uh, <laughs> come uh, flexible with, uh, with the space and um, even the parking. We're going to try to have some people out there directing you to park. I don't think the parking lights work yet. And so uh, it's gravel parking. So we'll just all do our best to, to get there and see it. I'm really excited about what that is to bring. And yet I've heard, as I've just been still before the Lord, him just remind me over and over, Luke, don't be Martha. I have this tendency to, uh, to be a doer. And I like to be a doer, and I like to get things done, and I like to hang around people who get things done. And uh, a lot of our staff, as a reflection of that, we're people who like to get things done. But if we get a lot done and we miss the heart of Jesus, and we miss the voice of Jesus, then we've got a lot of things done in vain. And so I do not want us to have that posture. So um, I want us to come eager in this next season. I want us to be uh, sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. And, um, and I want us to hear uh, from Him. We're going to start tonight at, uh, at 5 o'clock. We have 140 chairs that are there. Um, so you might bring an extra soccer chair if you have one or camping chair or any kind of chair you can throw in the back of your, uh, your car. 
And if we run out, then we'll just, I guess, sit on the floor. We'll figure it out. Let me pray for us real quickly as we jump into Mark's gospel. God, I pray that you would speak to us from your word. Help us to see Jesus through the word of God. Holy Spirit, as you shine the light on Jesus, Jesus, you show us what it's like to know who the Father is. So help us to see you clearly and help us to conform our life to your life. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, We are jumping in uh, the gospel of Mark, and this is the last gospel, really. Um, they, They really even say Acts is the fifth gospel. We've walked through the gospel of Luke. We've walked through the gospel of John. We walked through Acts of the Apostles. In our beginning days, we did about a 15 uh, message section in, Go- in Matthew's gospel uh, in, uh, in basically year one and a half. And so we're going to look at Mark's gospel. And um, I love it. I have just loved studying it. I encourage you to pick it up and read it with us. Mark is the first written account. Let me just kind of intro the book real quick, and then we'll get into kind of two real points today. Mark's the first written account of the life of Jesus. There were no written accounts that were publicly circulated of the life of Jesus for about 30 years after Jesus. No written accounts. The accounts of Jesus were spread verbally from person to person, from house to house, and there was no real need for written accounts. They were a society without much paper, very illiterate. So most all documents and history and all the accounts were spread orally and storytelling. And the reason that there was no real even need for a written account at that point is because there were very little errors or distortions because there were so many eyewitnesses still around that could refute any exaggerations or distortions. In his letter to Corinth, uh, Paul even mentions that there were as many as 500 people that saw Jesus resurrected. And so if you had questions, you wouldn't talk to one of those 500 that had saw it. But even more than that, remember on more than one occasion, he fed more than uh, 10,000 people on more than one occasion. And people saw him do miraculous things. He did not do these things in secret. But as those people, the first eyewitnesses started dying off and the gospel started spreading outside of Jerusalem, Judea, a written account was needed. The reason it was needed, because there began to be a danger of people making up Jesus in a way that they wanted to follow. You could lose the truth of the real Jesus. This is why I encourage so many of you to keep the Gospels as part of your daily reading. Because we all face the same temptation to make up a Jesus that we want to follow shockingly that Jesus looks a lot like us so Mark sets out to put together this account and the same way as Luke did let me remind you of Luke I think I have this passage on the screen in Luke chapter 1 Luke writes and as much as as many that's including Mark have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, Luke says, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus. There was a uh, gospel benefactor who hired Luke to do some investigative journalism and put the gospel of Luke together. And this is what the gospel writers did. 
compile all the eyewitness accounts like uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit write down so that generations to come would have an orderly detailed account of who the true Jesus is not a Jesus in our own making and again let me hit this point this is so important because we easily deceive ourselves Many in our nation are interested uh, in a Jesus who looks just like them. We all want a Jesus who's shaped like us, do we not? One that, one that doesn't change you. One that doesn't push back. One that doesn't bring conviction. Because the reason that we want is because we don't want the difficulty of having to change or to morph or to repent or to be under conviction. But friends, that's deception talking when we make a Jesus out of what we want him to be. Jesus doesn't look like us. He's so radically different. And because he's so radically different, he can be constantly encouraging us and convicting us and leading us to be shaped more like him. Also empowering us to do that. Many theologians call uh, Mark, the theme of Mark, a look into the life of the true Jesus. The real Jesus. See, if we look at Matthew, Matthew, he starts with genealogy, his roots, where the family comes from. It brings legitimacy to the bloodline of Matthew. There's prophecies about him. He goes into, goes back pretty far. Matthew's audience were Jewish people. From a Jew to the Jewish people, it was important to connect it all the way back to Abraham. Luke he was a physician. He starts with prologue about Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary. And he, he focused a lot of his gospel, right, around the supernatural events of the coming of Jesus. He writes to Greeks mostly, and Greeks love Greek culture and uh, the music and the beauty and the songs. And so Luke contains this unique detail of more stories and songs and parables than any other of the gospel writers. John, that we went through uh, a year or so ago, he goes back even further. He starts in the beginning of time, John does. In the beginning was the word, he says. Feels similar to even how Genesis starts, correct? John is speaking to everyone because everyone needs to know Jesus. John really captures the emotions and the heart of what it was like to be sitting right next to him and what the disciples were thinking. John mentions those things a lot. But Mark... Boom, you heard the reading, starts right in on Jesus' ministry. Nothing about the birth story, nothing about going way back in time. Right in exactly what Jesus did, his actions, very little discourse. He has a focus of what Jesus was actually doing. Mark is known as the immediate gospel. Very little fluff. You get to know exactly just... Forget all the storylines. I want to know what Jesus is doing, and I want to know what he's doing right now and right then in this situation. Mark uses the word and, the conjunction and, uh, 1,375 times to tie together the endless actions of Jesus. Almost like a comic book would read, and then Batman did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. And that's how Mark presents it. Luke wants us to know, Matthew takes time to explain the significance of the town. Luke wants us to know how many people are around to see it, all the numbers. John tells us how everyone's feeling and how they're impacted. And Mark just says, here's what I want you to know. This is what Jesus did when he showed up. And you know how this works. They all have a little different angle. You ask your kids to 
write a paragraph on the last vacation they had and they all bring out different things and different things. They say, all true stories, but a little different kind of perspective. All true with different emphasis. Revelation chapter 4, one of the most confusing passages in Revelation 4, describes the angels, the cherubim around God's throne, having four different faces, a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. By long tradition, the church has attributed one of these faces to each of the gospels, according to the characters and message of that particular gospel. You can see this in the cathedrals in Europe, these beautiful, ornate carvings, repeated again and again of this face of a lion, face of a calf or an ox, uh, of a man and of an eagle. And traditions, one of the thoughts is that this is representing the four different gospels and the gospel of Mark is mostly associated with the ox because the gospel of Mark shows Jesus as a servant, just as an ox is an animal of work or service. This would be the theme the true Jesus, the servant of God. For this reason, Mark reads real busy. Jesus seems the busiest, quickly moving from one event to another. He uses the word immediately all the time, occurring more than 40 times, several times a chapter. We see immediately that Jesus did this and immediately he did this. Jesus is busy meeting needs and busy being God's Messiah. Mark's gospel contains an emphasis on the deeds of Jesus more than the words. The gospel of Mark pictures Christ in action, minimum discord, maximum of doing. Well, Mark was not one of the disciples, so where did he get all this information? Certainly inspired through the Spirit, but a lot of theologians call the gospel of Mark also the gospel according to Peter. Because Mark was a dear brother of Peter, Peter had firsthand knowledge of these things and he passed them down to Mark. We also see that in his use of uh, Aramaic phrases, his vivid detail, the eyewitness accounts. Some of you may recognize Mark, also known as John Mark, the one who quit on Paul in his missionary journey. And this is true. And I think why he and Peter got along so well is because they both knew failure and they both knew restoration quite well. The only mention of Mark himself in the gospel narrative is found in Mark 14 as Jesus is arrested, likely a youth at that time. He was part of this larger group that's following Jesus and Mark barely escaped. Acts 12 tells us that the early church met in Mark's uh, the home of Mark's mother, Mary, in Jerusalem. And Mark is writing mostly to the Roman mind, to the hardworking, accomplished-oriented Romans. Mark wrote a gospel that emphasized, again, Jesus as God's servants. Now, when Bible translators around the world translate the, the scriptures into a new language, they most often start with Mark. One, because it's the shortest of the gospels. But another reason is because it's written for people who are unfamiliar with first century Judaism. Mark wrote it for the Romans, and so an outsider can see and understand. Into the text. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
immediately going back to Isaiah as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The one, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. We see three, really four names given to the Messiah, this servant of God, as Mark would introduce him. I want to talk about those briefly and then the two kind of lessons we learned from John the Baptist here and then we'll be done. First of the names we see is Jesus. He says that there, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the New Testament form of the Hebrew name Joshua, pronounced Yeshua in Greek. And it's a transliteration of the word that literally means Yahweh is salvation, or to simply put, God saves. Jesus would be the Messiah's personal name. But there were many people in the, in the world at that time named Jesus. Jesus, the personal name of God, connected to the actual name that God gave Moses in the burning bush when Moses says, Who's, who am I going to tell them you are? And he says, I am that I am. That's the name Jesus, but the thing that distinguishes that name is it's connected with the name Christ, Jesus Christ. Christ was not his last name. Christ was uh, the prophetic idea of the coming Messiah. It literally means the anointed one or the anointed king. And Mark puts them together to declare to the world that this Jesus from Nazareth, the Jesus, he's the Jesus. He's the Yeshua. He's the great I am. He is God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. In Psalms 130 and verse 8, the psalmist says, He, Yahweh himself, will redeem Israel from all their sins. And Mark is saying, this is the fulfillment of that promise. See, we read this backwards and we think that, that, that the promises of the coming king like would have happened in a lifetime and then they would see the coming king in that lifetime. But there were hundreds, centuries of years of darkness in the intertestamental period. There were thousands of years before this promised Messiah as spoken by the prophets would actually show up. And so this was such a startling thing that Mark would say, listen, Jesus Christ the coming promised Messiah, this is the one. And this is the good news. That's what he says, the beginning of the gospel. Gospel literally means good news. Finally, it's good news because God not only said that he would redeem people from their sins, he is actually sending Jesus for this exact purpose. He's Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, so much historical context. Remember, Mark is writing to the Romans. The Romans were under the rule of the Caesars. And he uses all of this Roman terminology that we have since uh, read and have adopted into, um, into our scriptural narrative, especially as we get closer to Christmas. We think about these things as we read these stories. But this term, Son of God, has so much historical context. The world was ruled by the Roman Empire. Caesar was the ruling emperor. And in order to rule in the way that he did and to have so much land, he ruled in in tandem with the Senate. And then when he died, and there was a bit of a civil war that happened, and then Octavian, later renamed Augustus, took everything under his own rule. And he was ruling. 
at the time of the birth of Christ. It was said of him, he is the one who is to come and will create an empire of peace, said about Augustus. He ruled from Great Britain to India. The Senate nicknamed him God on earth. There were temples built to Augustus. There were sacrifices made to him. In 17 BC, there was this strange star that appeared in the heavens. And they all speculated that this must be his father, Julian, Julius Caesar, returning to heaven to sit next to Zeus. Shortly after this, Augustus claims that he himself was the actual son of God. And he had a celebration called the 12 days of Advent. Advent means appearing where they would celebrate, right? Augustus in his rule and his father in this, probably this planet that is shining. Augustus would tell the people if they had done anything wrong, they could come and offer a blood sacrifice and that Augustus would forgive them of their wrongdoing. The youth of, the, of Rome would sing songs calling him a savior of peace. Coins were produced with a picture of Julius and his star, which proclaimed Augustus, son of God. I think I have a picture. Yeah, this coin behind me. This is these, you can still find these. Isn't this amazing? Uh, this is Augustus, the emperor of Rome, saying, look at me. I am the actual son of God with the star in the background. So Mark starts his gospel by saying, listen, the beginning of the real good news I know you've heard some good news. That's not good news. I know you've heard of a son of God in Augustus. That's not the real son of God. I, I know you heard of a savior of peace. He, he's not the real one. Mark says, I want you to meet the real one, the real son of God. It is Jesus of Nazareth who is the coming Christ. Mark builds this argument and one that Jesus himself would later put forth, that he would be the fulfillment of the promised Christ, the anointed one, the son of God. But then Mark takes it even another step. Another stab at exposing the leadership of the day. Look at the fourth name in our passage that's used of Jesus. It's in the quote of Isaiah. Behold, I send my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The name Lord. The fourth name we see in this little introduction of Mark's gospel. I don't know if you've ever read through it and even paused enough to think through these unique words. Again, this is connected to the God of the Old Testament. Now, lowercase Lord was anyone of royalty or ruler, someone in charge of something. But Isaiah speaks of a ruler of rulers, the Lord of lords. There was a phrase again circulated in Rome of its day that salvation comes through Augustus. And to pay homage to him, you would shout out if you saw his royal parade, Caesar is Lord. And Mark is making this point long before Augustus claimed to be a Lord. There was one mightier than he. And he didn't come as a conqueror. He came as a servant. He does this by introducing this quote from Isaiah pointing back several hundred centuries. Augustus, long before you were a thing, bro, Isaiah promised that there was a coming Messiah and he would be the Lord. And you would know that he was coming by this forerunner who was John the Baptist. 
We see this introduction, John the Baptist, the other gospel writers give us a lot more context. John the Baptist was a man's man. There's a lot of different Johns in the Bible. There's five in the New Testament specifically. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, is who we're talking about today. Then there was John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee, brother of James, James and John, the one that would, uh, part of the three that went with Jesus everywhere. There was a friend of Annas, the high priest, who sat in the Sanhedrin when, when Peter and John were tried. That's in Acts 4. There's John Mark, who we're reading his gospel right now, designated by his name. We just call him Mark as the writer of the gospel of Mark. And then fifthly, there's the father of Simon Peter, his name also John. But we're talking about John the Baptist or John the baptizer. And he gets that name because of the, the action he's doing as he comes to light in each of these gospel narratives. In verse four, it says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. John chapter 1 says of John the Baptist, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all may believe through him. Now this John the Baptist was a really unique guy. He was a guy who lived in the wilderness, stayed in the wilderness it's calls of him, hey, John, where do you stay? I stay in the wilderness. A voice crying in the wilderness. You ever, you ever been camping and heard weird noises at night? And there's nothing that separates you from danger except this really thin piece of tent material that somehow makes you feel a little safe somehow. I'm not sure how that works. But those noises can be a little intimidating while you're camping can you imagine to hear the voice of john the baptist yelling from the wilderness it doesn't say he was speaking in a soft library tone in the wilderness he was crying in the wilderness when you think about john the baptist don't think about a guy in khakis and a button-up wearing this he's wearing this robe of camel hair that he probably killed himself and He's eating bugs and honey. These are the things that the Bible tells us to give us a little bit of personality. He's yelling at people, repent and be baptized. This is not the counselor who's like, slowly, tell me how you feel about this. Those are necessary. This is not who this is. Luke 7, Jesus says he's the greatest man who ever lived. Luke 7, 28, I tell you, among those born of women... None is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is even greater than he. How about that? The angel announced before John was born that he would be great among men. And he was great because he was filled with the Holy Spirit from, from the womb. And, he, and because he ran the race that God laid before him. Today's passage really tells us two things about John. One more about Jesus we'll get to right before we finish. The first about John was that he led with humility. To set the scene, this is not the guy who's in the center of, uh, of Roman power, although he had a lot of charisma and probably could take him really far. He had a special anointing on his life, but he didn't use that anointing for his own benefits. These people are in the wilderness. 
the wilderness, don't think like a forest. Think of like the desert with uh, no water and uh, very little water and thorns. They're in a place called Bethany, but it's not the Bethany you've heard of where, uh, where Jesus would often go to see Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus, but this is a different Bethany on uh, the east side of the Jordan River, mostly uh, uninhabited desert landscape kind of place. There's a few caves, maybe the outcast or the lepers would find their home in such a place like this. Who are you, John? Tell us about yourself. Oh, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. John led with humility. He's given the stage, but he takes the humble road, not denying his gifts, not denying his prominent role in the ministry of Christ, certainly fulfilling that. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, right? It's a good definition. John could have probably made a lot of money and started a blog and a TV ministry, or at least he could have sent some tapes out, right? He could have done, he could have really rose to prominence and used his gifting for his own good, but instead he remains humble. He would later send his own very disciples that were following him to be the disciples of Jesus. The root word for this word humility is, it really just means to know your place. This quote by David Wells, humility has nothing to do with depreciating ourselves and our gifts in ways that we know to be untrue. Even humble attitudes can be masks of pride. Humility, rather, is that freedom from ourself which enables us to be in positions in which we have neither recognition nor importance, neither power nor visibility, and even experience deprivation, and yet have joy and delight. It is the freedom of knowing that we are not in the center of the universe, not even in the center of our own private universe. That's humility that I can serve the lowest of the lows without accolades, without, uh, without needing anyone to, to see what I'm doing. And friends, this is what the gospel does in us. It reminds us daily of our depravity and at the same time of our value, that our sin was so incredibly heinous that God himself had to leave heaven to die for us. But we being the joy said before him are so loved that he considered it a joy to do this. This is how the gospel works. This is how it changes us. This is why we don't have to strive for people to notice us and to, and to convey our identity. We get our identity from the Lord. And because we're so secure in what the Lord has said about us and called us to be and is making us into, then we can walk humbly. We don't have to walk into a room hoping people notice and recognize us and say, here I am, here I am, I'm here, I'm here. We can walk in with the posture of a servant and say, oh, there you are. Oh, so good to see you. Oh, there you are. How, how can I bless you? Oh, th oh, there you are. Does that make sense? This is, this is what the gospel does in us. We see this in the life of John. John would later say, I must decrease so that he must increase. In verse 7, it says, the thongs of whose sandals I'm, I'm not worthy to untie. And that day, a disciple would, would do all the work that a servant would do, except one thing, that he would never untie the sandals of his teacher. He wouldn't wash his teacher's feet. That was such a menial task meant for the lowest of the low. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do the lowest job imaginable, uh, imaginable to untie his sandals. You see the humility in who John is. John would later 
be captured. As you know the story, his head would be severed. But while he was waiting in prison, he sends word to Jesus, who he knows is the Messiah and the Lamb of God. He sends word to Jesus, Jesus, are you really the true Messiah? And Jesus basically sends word back to him, yeah, but you don't, you don't get to see the fullness of it. You don't get set free physically. Second thing about John, this is my only other point, is that John pointed people to Jesus. When attention came his way, he pointed people to Jesus. As great as John was, he knew that any greatness that he had came from Jesus. Look at his message that he preached. In verse 7 again, and he preached, this is his preaching point, this is his message. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Again in John chapter 1. In verse 8, it says that John the Baptist, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And this is what John does again and again and again. He's bearing witness to the true light. Verse 3 says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, what is he crying? Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. It uses this historical fig, uh, uh, phrase that all the Romans re reading this would understand. Preparing a road for the king before a king was going to take his journey through his empire uh, to gain favor of the people, uh, to enforce even his rule sometimes. He would send a word, sometimes one to two to three years before he would actually take that trip. And all the people who got word that the, that the emperor was going to come through your town would, would get busy making a road. They didn't have a road. Most of them had never even seen a real chariot except for in war. They might have had some livestock, but most of them walked. And when you walk all the time, you don't need great roads. But before the emperor came and he would be carried in on his uh, chariot with, with his uh, royal procession, he would let them know, hey, hey the, the, the emperor's coming and we've got to make a way. We've got to prepare the way for the emperor who is to come. And this is one of the reasons Mark ties this back again uh, several centuries before Jesus was to come, that this was the phrase that Isaiah even used, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist called himself basically the road builder for the one who is greater than he, for the greater one who would follow him with fuller revelation of what salvation would look like. Isaiah 40 and verse 5 said that the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. This glory that John the Baptist, that Isaiah is talking about and the one that John the Baptist is pointing towards, this glory was revealed through the person of Jesus of whom the writer of, that, of the gospel of John said, we have seen the glory of God. What has a very literal meaning for John as an implied meaning for us, friends, this is the greatest thing that you will ever use your life for. That your life would point to the glory of God in all things. All things. You might think that the next person who would come up with a cure for cancer, that they would have such a great life and they would. 
But the greatest thing that that chemist could do with his or her life is to point to Jesus and the glory of God in everything they do. This is what Paul says again and again. In everything you do, you should point, your life should be one that points, that mirrors the glory of God to the watching world in everything you do and how you do your job and how you raise your family and what kind of neighbor you are and what kind of friend or son or daughter you are and everything you do in your leisure time and recreation time and the sports teams you're on and the way that you do your work and the way that you forgive people, and the way that you're generous, on and on, everything your hand touches, every place your body goes, everything we do with our life should be this huge billboard pointing to the glory of God in all things, not of ourselves. And know what the psalmist says, not to us, O Lord. Can I ask you this question? How is your life pointing to the glory of God? Do your neighbors know it? Do your coworkers know it? Do your extended family know it? Do they know that your life is such a peculiar, strange kind of life because you're not seeking accolades of your own? That anytime you do get a stage, you're not using it for yourself, that you're just simply using that as a stage to point other people to the glory of God and all things. This should be what we do. This kind of forgiveness and love should be seen in our marriages. It would be that our married relationships would be so peculiar, not perfect, so peculiar that we, anyone that sees us up close would see something so peculiar about it. Then they would ask about it and we would say, oh, that's just because of what God's done. Forgiveness in marriage would point to the glory of God in all things. People in the room who are single, that people would see your singleness as, as you pointing to Jesus Christ in all things. That by the way that you live your life as a single person, it would be this Christ-exalting devotion of your singleness. And you would be telling and screaming and announcing to everyone who would see your life up close that you are devoted most to Jesus. And that would be seen through your singleness. And on and on we could go. Teenagers in here, students. You should use your platform to point to the glory of God in literally everything. Any success you have, the grades you make, the reputation that you have, what you do online on Insta or TikTok or Facebook or whatever new thing is, the way you talk with your mouth, it grieves my heart even as I thought about this, that I have not always used my mouth to point to the glory of God in all things. I wanted to be popular, so I said things that I thought would make me popular. It grieves my heart. Everything. Students and kids, the way that you treat your parents should point to the glory of God in all things, literally everything. On and on we could go, students and teens and kids and wives and husbands and singles and empty nesters and grandparents and widows and widowers, that we would use the platforms that we have to point people to Jesus. Titus 2 says, so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That because people know us, they would think of the gospel as more beautiful and better news, gooder news, gooder news than the good news, right? That they, you know what one of the problems with our evangelistic efforts is? If most of us are not walking in the abundant life because we're too busy, we have filled so many things in our schedule, and so we're redlined in our life. And so when people meet us and they say, well, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm busy. 
I'm overwhelmed. I've got so much on my plate. I'm barely catching a breath. And so then when we deal with anything difficult in our life, we're already redlined. We have no margin for forgiveness and mercy and grace and nuance and, and, and not hearing the voice of God because we're living our life this way. I mean, we got the thing redlined. And so one little thing kind of bumps us and we just blow up. Well, that doesn't adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't make it good news. You know what makes it good news? The fruit of the Spirit coming out of your life. To be a man or a woman or a teenager full of joy and peace and gentleness and kindness. That, that's what adorns the gospel as good news. Can I just warn you as your pastor that most of us lose track of this? In the whirlwind of our lives, in the bills to be paid, in the kids to feed, in the rent to pay, we make life about everything but the glory of God. We make it about our comfort and our career and our kids and our dreams. We make our life about all these things and we never walk or live in real peace or joy or lasting satisfaction. We were made by God to point to him and glorify him in literally everything that we do and how we suffer and how we handle success and how we handle hard seasons and how we handle being mistreated, that there's a way to adorn the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus by pointing to his glory. And that's John's life. He said, don't look at me. This is not about me. It's about Jesus. Look at Jesus. And friends, when people get up close to your life, that's what should be the anthem ringing through your homes and in your cars and from your lips. It's not about me. Look at Jesus. Can I tell you about Jesus? Can I brag on, can I brag on Jesus? This is John's life. He's filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. He yields to the Father's leading throughout the course of his life. So if the Father wants him to go here and not here, he follows the Father. He doesn't rebel. If the Father convicts him of sin, he repents. If the Father teaches him, he learns. If the Father corrects him, he changes. He's yielded. He's submitted to the Father. And that is John's life. And that is the call to the Christian life. It's a life like Jesus. John's life is a Jesus-like life. It's selfless, it's big, it's passionate, it's humble, it's truthful and bold. It suffers for the glory of God and the good of other people. A great life like John's is patterned after Jesus, empowered by the Spirit and led by the affectionate direction of our Father. And friends, this has been my prayer for you this week. I want greatness for you. Not greatness in the world's eyes, but in greatness in the eyes of Jesus. Not greatness for your own glory, but for the glory of Jesus. Not greatness for your own power, but greatness by the power of our great God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, right? What a great, great insights the scriptures give. And I'm so glad that we're Christians and we don't have to get up every day and say, Luke, you can do better. You can try harder. You can be great. But instead, I can tell you about the one who's greater than me and how he does great things in and through. And he allows us to live this great life while enjoying humility so that we can be joyful. Isn't that amazing? 
Here's my last thought, and then we'll prepare our hearts for communion. In the passage, they're in the wilderness. Behold, I send my messenger before you who will prepare the way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I read that through a dozen times or so, and I kept asking myself, why the wilderness? If John was so favored and all the people, it said all the people were streamlining out to see John baptizing in the wilderness. This would be like someone quasi-famous who says, uh, you know, I want to invite you all out to Haynesville. Like, wait, why, why don't you just come to Bossier? Where, you know, why don't, maybe let's go to Dallas to see you. Just this random in the wilderness, all the people coming. And even more than this, he's, it's humiliating a little bit because he's baptizing them. Now, a good Jew, and they would, before they would go into the temple, they would have to ceremonial clean themselves, wash their hands. There's a special way to do it all the way down to the elbow. They would have to do that ceremonially so they could be clean before they entered in. That cleaning was only temporary. Now, the Gentiles, however, they, they had to do more than that. They basically had to dump a bucket of water on their head. Their hands cleaning were not enough. They had to dump a bucket of water, but they also did that themselves. And yet they go to John, and it's probably the first time ever that, he, that they've ever been baptized by another person. John's baptizing, and he says he's, his baptism is, is temporary. It's a baptism of repentance. For the forgiveness of sins. It's, it's this awareness that my little hand washing in and of itself is not enough to really make me clean. My dumping the bucket on my head is not enough to make me righteous. This is why John says this baptism is temporary for the forgiveness of sins. I just want you to sit in it for a minute to understand that your righteousness before a holy God is nothing. But there's one who's greater, John says, that's coming, who won't baptize you temporarily for the forgiveness of your sins. He will baptize you with his Holy Spirit. He will come and reside in your life. He will be the one who is advocating before the Father all the time of your righteousness through the work of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? But he's doing this in the wilderness. John certainly has more opportunities that are closer. Surely there was a better place where people could find him, when he could have a bigger stage. But Isaiah prophesies this, and John knows this, and Jesus knows this. Next week, Jesus himself is going to go into the wilderness. You're going to see that. Because the wilderness is where the people of God find him. Where did Moses talk to God in the burning bush? But in the wilderness, in the desert. Where did Jacob wrestle with God and walk away with a limp and a blessing? It was in the wilderness. Where did Elijah commune with God? But after Mount Carmel. 
but in the wilderness. Where did Israel meet God? Was it in Egypt? No. It was at Sinai. That's where they met God. And then they spent 40 years wandering in that same wilderness so that they could know a God that provides even when you're not killing it. See, they were ready to walk into the promised land and they didn't believe the promise of God. You remember this? They're ready. They send the spies in. The spies come back and I'm like, man, those, those dudes are huge. We can't do it. And Joshua and Caleb says, yeah, God can handle this. He just walked us through the, the Red Sea. He can handle these people. But they didn't believe. And so God took them on a 40-year journey in a circle. Now, they didn't get the fullest blessing of God, but you know what they did do? They did get the provision of God. God made sure in 40 years that their clothes never wore out. Isn't that amazing? God did provide them every day with manna from heaven. He did make the rock pour forth water so they would have to drink. This is what God did. He took care of them. They spent 40 years in the wilderness, not as a punishment necessarily. It was a consequence, but they did it so they could meet God. Why? See, the wilderness is a place that you can't survive without the intervention of God. It's where the water dries up. It's where the well runs dry. It's where the food disappears. It's in the wilderness that Israel learned that God's not just an add-on. He's not just a vitamin supplement. He's not just a genie that we can, that, that we can get, gives us three wishes. No, God is everything. It's, he's in the center. Apart from the saving and sustaining work, this is what we learn even in our own lives, apart from the saving and sustaining work of Jesus in my life, I am without hope and I am without purpose. Jesus, using his own illustration, would say, I am the true vine. Apart from this vine, we're dead branches, to use his illustration. The problem is none of us like the wilderness, but it's the only place we can really meet God. None of us like difficulty or grief. None of us like trial and temptation. But it's in these things. Just think about the last difficult time you've walked through. Some of you are walking through it now. Did you not find that God's more faithful than you ever thought? Did you not find that he's more true than you ever thought? Did you not find that he's more kind than you ever thought? When you're walking through your darkest days, when the wells have run dry, this is what God does in his love for us is he causes the wells to run dry. The well of career and relationship and people liking us and money and power, he, he lets them run dry so that through the desert we will find that God is all we need. Be careful here, though, because a lot of people when they're walking through the wilderness think God hates them. Think God has disappeared. Think, think that God is asleep at the will, that he's apathetic or that he's cruel or mean. And none of these things could be true. He's trying to give you the best thing. He's trying to reorient you to the most important thing so that you don't waste the only life you have.
Tim Keller says it this way. Jesus went to the greatest desert and lost God so that we could walk through our little deserts and find him. This is what we end the service with today is communion. And this is just symbolic of the life of Jesus offered to us. This is Jesus reminding us in this room, if you're walking through the desert and things look dark and even look hopeless, trust God. He is absolutely enough. For some of you that you're running to lesser wells and those wells aren't bringing up as much water as they used to. And if you're not careful when the well runs dry that you will run to church, but what you're actually running is not to Jesus, you're running to religion. And you'll think, now if I just do all the things that the church is asking me to do, then I'm going to find my meaning and worth. And your, your meaning and worth is not in all the things. Your meaning and worth and true identity is found only in Jesus. So no matter what you're walking, no matter what you're walking through today, my appeal to you is to trust Jesus. The communion at our church is not a closed communion. It's open. You don't have to be a member of our church, but you do have to be part of God's family. This is the symbolic reminder of Jesus going into the wilderness to hang on a cross for your sins and mine, to cry out to God, my God, my God, where are you? Have you forsaken me? To go into the desert to lose God for us in our little deserts to find him. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for Mark's account that you are Jesus the Christ the anointed king, the son of God, the exact imprint of his nature. You say, Jesus, if we've seen you, we've seen the father. We're overwhelmed with gratitude and thanksgiving this morning for Jesus of you walking that road to Calvary. Of you not looking for a shortcut, you not bowing out the easy way but walking to Calvary to endure the greatest shame, a king on a cross. Kings sit in thrones, not on crosses. And yet you, as Isaiah says, as a sheep silent before his shearer, You remained silent because you knew you weren't dying for your own sin. You were dying for mine. And in doing so, offer salvation to everyone who would turn to you to repent and believe. As we take this communion in a minute, Jesus, we thank you for your death, resurrection, ascension into heaven and your promised return. And we eagerly await that day where you'll come back and give death and Satan its final blow. But in the in-between, help us to trust you. Help us to live our lives for your glory every day and in every way. It's in Jesus' name, amen. We have the prayer team in the back. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. Our communion servers are here. We're going to sing a song of worship. But my encouragement to you is to listen for the voice of God this morning.
Listen to what he says. Just obey me here. 